Church family, as you find your seat, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 14? This morning we will look at all 24 uh, verses of that uh, chapter together, as well as uh, several others in some other places of the Scripture. Today's sermon is going to be uh, somewhat uh, unique uh, in that uh, this is a fairly unique text, and a unique text requires a unique sermon, and we will see that as we progress through it. As you find your place, uh, I do want to recognize that in a moment, as I pray before the sermon, we're going to pray uh, for uh, two mission teams. Now, this church is used to praying for mission teams. In any given year, we tend to send anywhere from 12 to 15 adult teams a year to work amongst our Pray, Send, Go partners uh, in North America and on the African continent. And this year, we had not sent any uh, to date because of the global pandemic. But uh, we are beginning to figure out new ways that we are able to go with the gospel. And so um, we have a team of two. And this is really what it's going to come down to is small teams being able to go and do things. And so we have a team of two this weekend uh, working with our church plant, Redemption Heights Church in West Philly. They were able to do kind of a pass-through block party, um, and uh, we sent two people up with some of our equipment and supplies to, uh, to help them with that, and they'll be returning today. And then on Friday, we're sending a team of one. Yes, one is a team. Uh, sending a team of one to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa to be with the L family uh, for about 10 days uh, there. And so we want to pray for what God is doing in both of those places and pray God would continue to open up uh, opportunities for us to send teams. Now, we're used to sending teams of 8, 10, 12, or more into some of these places. We may not be able to do that for some time, but I am grateful to the Lord that he at least provided this kind of opportunity uh, for us. I'll invite you now to stand with me as you've uh, found Genesis 14. For the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm just going to start in verse 18 and read down through verse 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Let's pray together. Father, we begin this morning by expressing our gratefulness to you for the truth of your word. Recognizing that you have spoken. And that for us to know what you have said, it is our responsibility by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit in our lives to search your word and find truth. Because in it, we do find absolute truth from God. So would you help us to do that this morning? Father, today we pray for those who are with our team in Redemption Heights and in West Philly. And we're grateful, God, for the people they were able to uh, have contact with. Uh, yesterday and during their block party and as they um, finish up there and return home. Father, we're, we're thankful for that work, that you would continue to work. We're even grateful, God, today that uh, one, of the, one of our launch team members at Redemption Heights is actually here with us in service today. And it's, uh, we, are, um, we continue to um, give thanks to you for that partnership and those who uh, have chosen to go and plant that church there. And then 
for the one who will leave Friday uh, to go be with the L family in sub-Saharan Africa. We pray God for safe travels, for uh, negative COVID tests, multiple that will need to be given uh, to be able to travel and be in country there. And we pray God for a uh, sweet time of encouragement for that family uh, there in that country, we ask. We pray, God, that you would uh, open our eyes now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we continue here in our series in Genesis, what we will see in Genesis 14 is a different kind of king. Genesis 14 is a different chapter. It stands as unique, maybe the most unique chapter of all 50 contained within this first book of the Bible. Certainly, it is the most unique in the section of this book that tells us of the story of Abram, who would become Abraham. Genesis 12 through 22 contains the primary story of Abram. While we are introduced to Abram in Genesis 11, and he does not pass away for another three chapters uh, after Genesis 22, his, the primary story of his life is contained within these 11 chapters beginning with God calling him out of his homeland in Mesopotamia, promising that he would show him a place where he would go and giving seven promises to Abram centered around this blessing that would pass from one generation to the next and ultimately be a blessing for the entire world. But when we get to Genesis 14, it reads differently than all of the others that have preceded it and all that will follow it here in the life of Abram. In this chapter alone is the divine voice of God silent. In every other chapter in the life of Abram, God speaks directly either to Abram himself or to someone in Abram's atmosphere, but not here. Here, the divine voice of God is silent. In every other chapter from Genesis 12 through 22, the promise that God gives to Abram in chapter 12 is central to the story. We do not understand anything else that happens in all of the events of Abram's life without correctly understanding that promise, except for here in Genesis 14. The promise of God to Abram in Genesis 12 is not put on hold in Genesis 14. This is still on theme, but it is not central to the text. This is the only chapter in the life of Abram where we see military conquest. He is described in many other ways in the other chapters, but only here do we see him as a warrior. This chapter, Genesis 14, also introduces one of the most enigmatic Bible characters in all of the Old and New Testament, who appears as if from nowhere and disappears from the story just as quickly. Today is going to require that we dig into God's word. Pastor John Piper once said, raking is easy because all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. Today, church family, we are going to dig we are going to see this very unique story and then explore the doctrinal significances, not only here in Genesis, but throughout the entire word of God. And I'll invite you to join me in as we dig, because at the bottom of this hole, we find a diamond most precious. 
Here in this story, we find Jesus, the most precious diamond we could ever hope for. Genesis 14 begins with a battle of nine kings. Verses 1 through 16 really describe this account, this warrior account of Abram after having, uh, after having pursued these kings after they fight a battle that really has nothing to do with him. Normally, we, when we approach the text, I read every word of the text because we believe every word is the Bible. Today, I'm going to break from that tradition for two reasons. Number one, for time. And number two, I really truly believe that you will understand this story better if I just tell it to you. Because there are names in these first several verses that are very hard to understand. They are completely different than anything we would ever name our children. And there are places that are entirely foreign to us. Cities and city-states and Mesopotamia and Canaan that, that either do not exist anymore or exist in completely different states than they once did. So if you will, I would just like to tell this story of four northern kings as they attempt to reestablish control over five vassal kings in the Jordan River Valley. Abram, in Genesis 11, we, we are introduced to him. He is in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in Mesopotamia, which would be north and west, uh, north and east of uh, Israel. In, the, in chapter 13, we see uh, Abram travel south of Israel to Egypt, where he encounters Pharaoh. And in preaching that message two weeks ago, I, I told you that to, to go from Pharaoh, who was the most powerful person there in northern Africa, to find the next most powerful person, we would have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to Abram's homeland in Mesopotamia. And that's what we do today. Because there are powerful kings that existed during this time in Mesopotamia. Most likely the most powerful of them, had other vassal kings there in that area who reported to him. And then uh, as, the la as their uh, influence in the land spread out, those kings and those cities and states reported up to them. And for 12 years, these kings in this uh, Canaanite Jordan River Valley area paid tribute to their Mesopotamian overlords. There were five kings there in that Jordan River Valley who would pay yearly tributes to the kings in Mesopotamia. But in, and for 12 years, they did just that. And in year 13, they got tired of paying the tax and they stopped. And so in year 14, those four northern kings go on the warpath. And if you were to read through these verses, here's what you would see described to people who would understand it if they understood the ancient landscape. These kings travel from Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, that, that area, and they travel south, primarily what would be through modern-day Jordan, what was known in ancient times as the King's Road. This would be to the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. 
And they conquer along the way as they go, reestablishing their control. And they follow the king's road all the way down to the tip of the Red Sea, where the king's road had run north and south. At the Red Sea, it turns directly east and west across the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt. These kings dare not challenge Egypt because they control that section of the king's road there in the Sinai Peninsula and the Mesopotamian kings controlled the Jordan section of the king's road. So they march all the way south down to the Red Sea, reestablishing their control. And then they head into an area that we've seen introduced here in Genesis known as the Negev. Here in the Negev, the Amalekites and the Amorites live and they conquer new areas. Not only have they reestablished control over those cities along the king's road that they had already been in control, but now they are branching into new territory. And they fight these battles in the Negev, and they win, and they begin then to go back home. And on their way back home, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam join forces to do battle against these Mesopotamian kings. This battle takes place south of the dead, what is now the Dead Sea. And these Jordan River Valley kings are greatly defeated. We pick up here in the story in verse 10 where we read, Now the valley of Siddim, this is the valley south of the Dead Sea, was full of bitumen pits. These are tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So these Mesopotamian kings uh, drive back those who have come out to do battle against them, driving some of them to excruciating deaths here in these tar pits. And others go into the hill country, what would be known as the Judean hill country, this vast desert wilderness. And they hide, maybe in some of the same caves as which David would have hidden from Saul, maybe possibly in some of the same caves that In the early 1900s, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the same area. So they've gone into hiding from these Mesopotamian kings. We're also told, verse 11, so the enemies took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. As Pastor Michael preached last week, the... the, uh, possessions of Abram and his nephew Lot had grown so great that there was, uh, there was not room for the herds of both of them to dwell together. So they went up to a high place and Abram said, you choose. And Lot chose the Jordan River Valley. And so he goes into the Jordan River Valley and Abram goes into the Negev and Sodom happened to be in the Jordan River Valley. And that's where Lot made his home. And Lot gets caught up in this war that really had nothing to do with him But he is captured as a part of this military expedition by these Mesopotamian kings. And they begin to take him and his family and his kindred as slaves back to Mesopotamia. What we'll see here is Abram hears about this and he pursues and defeats these four northern kings. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time, by the way, we see this term in the Old Testament. Abram is now being identified. His ethnic identity is sure. He is Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Marm, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. 
These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So here's what Abram does. Word gets to Abram who is living in the Negev. This would be uh, in the area of Hebron, south of Jerusalem. And word, one of the survivors comes and says, the, the Jordan River Valley kings have been routed by these Mesopotamian kings. And oh, by the way, they took Lot, your nephew, and his people with them. And they're now headed north back towards Mesopotamia. But they were not taking the king's road back. They were already uh, within the, what would become the nation of Israel. And they were traveling north towards the Sea of Galilee. And Abram pursues. And we're told that he pursued them as far north as Dan, which meant from Hebron in the south to Dan in the north. It was about 200 miles. This would have been a long journey on foot or and he pursues them nonetheless with only 318 men. Notice the specificity that the biblical author goes into. When we see specific numbers like this, this is what we should understand. The author wants us to know that this is a true historical event. This is why these names and places are here. This is why this number is here. It's, it's a true event. And he pursues them. 318 men against Four Mesopotamian kings with vast armies who had already won a great battle against five kings. But nonetheless, Abram pursues. And we're told that Abram in his wisdom here divides his forces. This is what it means when he says he divides his forces. As Abram devises a plan. He has a plan here in Dan, north of the Sea of Galilee. They attack at night. And they win. And Abram brings back his nephew Lot. He brings back all of his possessions. He brings back the women and the people that were with him. Everything that the Mesopotamian kings had stolen from the Jordan River Valley, Abram has now returned. And it says that he pursued them as far north as Damascus. Damascus would be outside. It would be north of the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham. Abraham has now driven these pagan kings completely outside of the land that would become Israel. And he is returning with the spoils of war. But then, Abram encounters a unique tenth king. One that has not been mentioned yet. One that is not listed, he is not one of the nine, he is not one of the uh, Mesopotamian kings or one of the Jordan River Valley kings. He has not been mentioned so far in the account of Abraham and he will not be mentioned again in the entire book of Genesis. But this encounter opens our eyes to so much of what God is doing, not only here in Genesis 14, but in the entire story of redemption. This encounter begins with the priest king Melchizedek blessing Abram and receiving a tithe from him. Look at verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Cherith, you know, for four days I've practiced that. 
Really? Chedorlaomer. That's how you say it. Chedorlaomer. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Chedorlaomer was the uh, primary Mesopotamian king. Those others served as vassals to him. And Abram has now defeated them in the north, and he is returning south the same way that he came. But he does not make it all the way to Hebron. He makes it most of the way. He makes it maybe 175 of those 200 miles. But he stops outside of a small little hamlet on top of a hill with six others surrounding it, a little place called Salem a place that would eventually be called Jerusalem. And Abram stops there with his, with his warriors and with all of the possessions and everything that he's returning with from this, from this battle in the north. And this new character appears, Melchizedek, king of Salem. The word Melchizedek means righteous one. Salem means peace. So this is a righteous king who rules over a land of peace. And we're told in verse 18 that he was not just a righteous king who ruled in the land of peace, but he is also a priest of God most high. He is not a priest as would have been common within that land of some pagan Canaanite God within their pantheon. He is a priest of the one true God. Now, if you've been coming for the last several weeks, we could trace all the way back to the curse of Ham and we know where the Canaanites came from and that the Canaanites were going to be subservient to um, the, those who would ultimately be in the line of Abram and they would be pagans And the line of Abram would be the line of faith who served the one true God. But yet this man from the line of Canaan, who we have never heard of before, is called in Scripture a priest of God most high. God is at work. Here's what we need to recognize here in this text, first and foremost, that God is doing something that he has not previously told us about. That God was working in this man's life, this priest king Melchizedek there in what would eventually become Jerusalem. And we've not been told anything about him before. And yet we know that the sovereign hand of God is orchestrating these events. These Mesopotamian kings thought they were just marching south to reestablish control. These Jordan River Valley kings thought they were uh, just tired of their Mesopotamian overlords and were attempting to throw off that yoke of burden, but God was at work. Abram begins to pursue these kings because they have taken his kinsmen, possibly not knowing that God is at work. Abram now returning with these spoils of war camps outside of Jerusalem not knowing that God was at work. 
and he meets this man who at least from the text we can assume he has never met before and from the silence of further text may never meet again. And this priest king Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to him. He greets him. He feeds him. And then he blesses him. He said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. This is a priest that knows who God is and knows the expanse of the power and sovereignty of God. He recognizes there is one true God who is the creator and possessor of the entire universe. And this priest of that God blesses Abram. Then he blesses God himself and credits Abram's military victory to the hand of God. He says in verse 20, who delivered your enemies into your hand. So two things have happened so far. Number one, we have this encounter with this different kind of king who then feeds, which is a sign of peace, feeds bread and wine to Abram, who then blesses as a priest king of the God most high, blesses Abram. And then this short little line at the end of verse 20 has great effect later in scripture. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek has fed him. Melchizedek has blessed him. And then Abram looks at his spoils of war and turns over one-tenth the first time that we see the tithe established in Scripture, a tithe, if you're new to church, a tithe is a giving of 10%. And it's a fairly common practice uh, as a part of the law in the Old Testament. And we see it also in the New Testament as, as religious people dealt with Jesus and then even further as the church contributed to the mission of God. But here it's introduced for the very first time in Scripture as Abram takes a tenth of all that he has and gives it then to Melchizedek. Many have tried to determine why this would be so. Is this, is this uh, that Abram is recognizing the superiority of Melchizedek? And just as those Jordan River Valley kings had to pay tribute to their overlords, is, is that what he's doing? Is this a division of the spoils? See, it was common in ancient times that some would go to war and they would bring back the spoils of war and divide it equally, even among those who did not go off to war. I don't think either one of those is really what's happening here. I think Abram recognizes that this man is of God. And Abram gives a tenth to him. Not because he is in some way uh, superior to Abram militarily or in some kind of position in that Salem was ruling that part of Canaan during that time. No. Abram recognizes something else. He recognizes that this is a man of God. And in recognizing that this is a man of God, he gives to him a tenth of everything he has. But there's another king present. And Abram refuses to share in the plunder with this wicked king, the king of Sodom. Look at the end of this chapter. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give to me persons, but take the goods for yourself. So, 
another king's present, this wicked king of Sodom who had run and hidden in the hills. Obviously, he didn't get driven into the tar pits like so many others. But now here he is saying, hey, Abram, we have no indication whatsoever that this king traveled with Abram up north to do battle. But now he wants his stuff back. And so he says, hey, look, you, you fought a big battle. How about we divide it like this? You keep the stuff and you give me the people. That seems like a fairly wicked response, right? You, you just give, you turn the people over to me. I'm going to make them slaves to, to me. You, you can keep the stuff. But Abram said to the king of Sodom in verse 22, I lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So he quotes that blessing from Melchizedek that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Marm take their share. So this wicked king says, all right, Abram, now that this blessing part's over, now that you've given to this priest king guy in Salem, now it's time for us to get really down to business, all right? You take all the stuff and I'll take all the people. And Abram says, I don't want a dime from you, brother. And he, makes the, he swears this oath in front of everyone. In front of everyone, he says, I will not have it be said that the wicked king of Sodom has made Abram rich. Think of what he's saying in verse 23. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything is yours. Verse 24, he says, I will take nothing but what my young men have eaten. We could phrase it like this. The king of Sodom says, let's divide these things equally. You take the stuff, I'll take the people. And Abram says, I don't want anything that's yours, and I'm sorry that we even ate your food. But you, sir, are not going to make me rich. Do you see the, the varied response here with how Abram interacts with these two kings? To one, he gladly gives a tenth of everything he has because he recognizes that this is a man of God. And to another... He says, I'm not taking a shoelace from you. It's vast difference. He says, these others can share. These others can divide it up. But I'm not taking anything. So it's not. This gives us further indication that it's not simply that Abram is wanting to divide the spoils between all of the kings that are present. No, he's recognizing the righteousness of one and the wickedness of another. So what? Now, this is a little quicker than we typically get to this section of the sermon, and this section of the sermon is a little longer than it typically is. Some of you had a little bit of hope there. <laughs> but there is, there is great doctrinal significance in this chapter. And again, nothing up until now has ever been said of this guy, Melchizedek. And nothing in all of Genesis will be said again. Not only in all of Genesis, nothing in narrative of the Old Testament will ever be said again. We have no idea what happens to this guy. We have no idea of the generations that would come after him. Just as quickly as he shows up, he disappears. But here we have this working of God in this righteous man who was the priest king of peace in Abram's life. And we have to ask, who is this guy? And how does the rest of Scripture, even though none of the narrative accounts of Scripture address him any longer, there are passages of Scripture that speak to him with great significance. So let's trace those and see. First, 
King David believed another king would come in his line who would be a different kind of king. A thousand years after Abraham, roughly, okay, a thousand years after Abraham, another man of God would ascend to the throne in the city of peace, in Jerusalem. His name is David. And David, a man after God's own heart, ascends to the throne and pens a coronation psalm. This was a psalm that David uh, wrote as he ascends to the throne. But it is not a psalm about him. It is a psalm about his line. It is a psalm that looks forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abram and to David. We read this in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, and this is David speaking, the Lord being Father God says to my Lord, meaning this one who would come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Then down in verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is Father God speaking. You, not David, you, the one who is to come in David's line are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's what David saw. David saw that through the promise of God to not only Abram, but to him, that he was establishing, he was establishing a royal line in Israel that would see the coming of the Messiah, that a different kind of king would one day come, not just a king who would be an earthly king like David, but an eternal king who would also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, kings and priests were different. Melchizedek was a priest king, but in Israel, we didn't have priest kings. We sometimes had godly kings. We sometimes had wicked kings, but then we had priests and they were different. But he recognizes that a day would come that one would sit on the throne who was both. About 500 years after David pins that, the people of God are taken into exile by the Babylonians. The Persians conquer Babylon and eventually let them begin to filter back into Israel And the prophet Zechariah says this, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now, if you're looking on this, you'll notice the branch is capitalized because this is, branch was a word that the prophet Jeremiah had used to talk about the Messiah. So Zechariah is talking about the Messiah, just using Jeremiah's uh, word for him. The man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. Now, this is the early return of exiles. They're returning to a completely destroyed Jerusalem. Life is very difficult. All they have managed up until this point to do in restoring Jerusalem um, is to rebuild the foundation of the temple. That's all they have is this flat slab. They're still paying great taxes to their Persian king who is about to go off to war with Egypt. So they were under the thumb of this Persian king sitting in this destroyed city looking at their temple that they're trying to rebuild that all they have is the foundation for. And they've grown disheartened. And Zechariah says, a day is coming where one will build this temple. And he's not talking about this brick and mortar temple. And he says, a day will come where the crown shall be in the temple. 
Zechariah is looking to the coming of the Messiah who would be both priest and king where the crown and the temple are together. Then we get to the New Testament where Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that a final priest king would reign forever. Psalm 110 and Zechariah 6 are talking about one man. His name is Jesus. He is the one who fulfills the prophecy, uniting the line of the priests and the line of kings together and doing the work of both. In the book of Hebrews is where we see this most clearly. And the author of Hebrews appeals to this ancient, righteous, priest king of the city of peace to make his claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of this new line of priest king. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's quoting Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews goes back to what David says at his coronation, back to this poem and brings it into the life of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, The author of Hebrews is starting this path and he goes back to the Old Testament and he reminds his readers, his Hebrew readers, is why the book's called Hebrews, okay? He's reminding his, his Israelite Christian readers about what God had said of old, about who this guy was long ago in the time of Abraham and then what God had said during the time of David, that another would come who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then he appeals to the life of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, who is this one who lived this perfect life, he is the one that by his righteousness has now been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is this new righteous priest. But then he comes back to this idea in Hebrews Six, starting in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf after becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now stop there for just a minute. The curtain was where the only the priest could go into the presence of God. And here's what he says. Jesus has now gone into the presence of God, but not like the priest did. The priest used to go in and come out and go in and come out. But Jesus has gone in and he stayed there. He's a priest forever at, like Melchizedek. Then he continues into chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now stop here, because somebody's gonna come to me in the lobby and ask this question. Based off of that passage and based off of this enigmatic uh, description of Melchizedek, should we read Genesis 14 and this priest king that appears in the life of Abraham as what is known as the pre-incarnate Christ? There are times in the Old Testament where God appears in, in 
human form. And we call that the pre-incarnate Christ. So before Jesus was a baby in the manger, right? That is not what's happening in Genesis 14. That is not how we should read Genesis 14. And actually, Hebrews 7 tells us that's not how we should read it. If we read it carefully. Because notice what it said there at the end of verse 3. He was neither without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. The author of Scripture had the ability to tell us, if he wanted to, that this was the Son of God, that this was the pre-incarnate Jesus, that this was God in the flesh appearing to Abram, but he doesn't. He says he's resembling it. And for something to resemble it means it's, it, it's not it, it's a picture of it. So how is he a picture of Jesus? It's not that Melchizedek, this king of righteousness and of Salem, was actually without father or mother of genealogy, or that he actually had no beginning of days or end of life, but his story in Scripture doesn't. We're not told where he came from. We're not told where he went. We're not told who came before him, who came after him. So that then serves as a picture of us. It's a resemblance then of who? Of Jesus, the Son of God, who is then a priest forever. So Melchizedek in Genesis 14 serves as this picture for us, this man who comes as if from nowhere, not relying upon who his parents were, not relying on some genealogical line, but being who God had told him to be. And then we see Jesus, who actually comes from God himself, who is God and has eternally existed with God. And Melchizedek is just this picture for us. He's this resemblance of the Son of God. Fine. It is only through this new and better priest king who established a new and better covenant that we may enter into the presence of God. So Jesus is this priest and king. He is fulfilling both lines. He is in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he is not appealing to some sort of genealogical line, but he is that because God has made him such. And we continue in Hebrews 7. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office. So for those that may not understand this, um, priests in Israel were all of descendants of Levi. So he's talking about the old covenant that God makes in the Old Testament where the Levites are the priests. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, Though these also are descendants from Abraham. So the Levites did not have land. Everybody else had land. And they all gave a tithe to the Levites for their well-being and for the running of uh, the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. By, but this man who does not have his descendant uh, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abram being the inferior, Melchizedek being the superior here. It is the one, it is the one uh, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So Levi and his descendant priests of his lines were in the loins of Abram when he pays this tithe, meaning the priests of Israel paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, 
If perfection has been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? The author of Hebrews appeals here now to this new covenant found in Jesus and says the new covenant was necessary because the old was not sufficient to save, but the new is. And here's how he continues in Hebrews 7. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus has ushered in something better now because he is this different kind of king, because he is this different kind of priest. He is now something new and better and what he offers is new and better. And finally, we read in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I know this has been a lot. I know we've dug down this deep hole, but here in these last minute or two, I want you to see the diamond at the bottom. Jesus, the eternal son of God, now priest and king in the order of the righteous king of Salem, Melchizedek. Not relying on genealogy, not a son of Levi, but one to whom symbolically even Abraham pays a tithe to is Jesus And here's what Jesus offers. He offers a new and better way to God. He offers to you, if you would only come to him in faith and repentance, he offers to you eternal life. That verse there in Hebrews 7, 25 says he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning there's not an ounce of you he can't save. There's not a little piece of you that will be left behind. That Jesus, this new priest king, there where the crown is in the temple, where he is on the other side of that curtain representing us before God, is able to save every part of you if you'll come to him in faith. If you'll just now believe in him who is the eternal priest king standing in our place having lived a righteous life, yet died a sinner's death so that you might live. This is the diamond at the bottom of our hole. His name is Jesus. And he offers today salvation complete to all who believe. Will you believe today and be saved? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus We thank you, God, for this story that you craft over the course of millennia so that we might put these pieces together and see, oh, how great is our God in the story of redemption that he's telling. And we pray, God, that that story would continue to the day in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls who have never yet believed. But they hear this today and they say, I believe in that because they can't save themselves but Jesus can save them to the uttermost. So we pray that he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would do that just now as people put faith in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.